0: Welcome to the Wealthy Homes Podcast, where we help young Michigan families manage their finances and create wealth. I'm your host, Connor Bowserman, financial advisor with Preferred Financial Group. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Wealthy Homes Podcast. Again, my name is Connor Bowserman, financial advisor with Preferred Financial Group. If you're anything like me, me and my wife love to watch different TV shows. It's kind of a way that we unwind. But even before I was married or even before even thinking about that, there were episodes or, or shows that I loved to watch, whether that was all the way growing up through my childhood, all the way into my teen and, and into adult years, and then and so on and so forth. But each one of those time periods, I can look back at some of the shows that I got hooked on, and some of them I can't tell you exactly why I watched them or... Uh, what intrigued me about him, But one of those different TV shows that I loved during that time was the Mythbusters. I can't, again, I can't tell you exactly why I love the show. I don't know if it's just my analytical mind, but it was just a, a good entertaining show. And what they did is they came up with different myths. And then the two main characters, which was Adam and Jamie, which just small little fact, doing some research through this podcast, Jamie's actually from Marshall, Michigan, which is pretty cool. But those two main characters would go through and test these different myths. And I don't know if it was, again, going back to that that myth and just being able to make a hypothesis on my own of what I thought it was or if it was going to be confirmed, plausible, or busted. But again, I just really like the show. And so kind of paying homage to that show, we're going to do basically a financial rendition of that. So what I did was I went through and researched eight common money myths that I run into either as a financial advisor or I've heard throughout the years. So kind of going through, we're going to test each one of these different uh, myths and we're going to give it an answer, whether that's the busted, confirmed, or plausible. So let's kind of get into the first one. So the first one is buying a home is always better than renting. If you've been listening to the podcast, you probably know my answer on this. And then this goes back to financial literacy and building wealth, but then also doing what makes sense financially. And so there you really what you have to do is you have to figure out your break-even cost. And for those who haven't bought a home or who have, know that there's a lot of upfront costs when it comes to buying a home. And some of those upfront costs can be a down payment to buy the home. And then there's some other things that... Creep up on those first-time home buyers who don't know it, and that can be like an earnest deposit. It could be closing costs, inspections of of some kind, whether you're doing a home inspection or a radon test or uh, insect inspection. There's a bunch of different inspections that you could possibly run into, and then there's just the other things that kind of come up with buying a home. And one of them is being illiquid, which basically means you can't run to a bank and basically cash out that that asset. Uh, fairly quickly and usually illiquid is something that's more than I would say a couple weeks is typically illiquid and that's typically a home and even if everything went very very quickly I mean you're talking probably at least a month between putting it up and listing it to then getting an offer and accepting it and then going through that due process of them doing the inspection and then going through the whole closing process I mean, that usually takes a couple of weeks. So even if everything was perfect, like it wasn't in, in COVID, you're still looking at about a month if if that. But now that we're in kind of more normal times, I mean you could be talking months or even a year of potentially listing your house and have it sitting on the market. So that is another another one when you're looking at that break even. Uh, potential repair bills. I know I've talked about this too. There's going to be things that are going to come up with with your house and especially as a young millennial or uh, as a younger person you're going to buy typically not as new homes as your first home so some of those repair bills can be pretty significant whether that's repairing a roof repairing uh, hvac systems doing some kind of remodel inside the, the kitchen or bathroom all those things are very very expensive and sometimes you don't know that they're coming so that makes it hard. Again, it's harder to move, especially now as, as if you have family or you have kids. It makes it very hard to be able to just up and move unlike when you were in college when you just felt like you had enough stuff you could fit in your car. Utilities are, are more when you're looking at buying a house versus renting. You got to think of, of, of heat, especially if you're on like the second or third floor of a, an apartment building. You're not paying as much to heat your, heat your apartment as you would. A two, three thousand uh, square foot home, and then th- again, a good benefit of buying a home is some of that that pay down of principal when you're talking about the loan. So you're getting some of that money back as as equity when you do close out that loan. The cons to to renting would be your higher monthly costs. Typically, you're paying a little bit more for, the, say, the square footage that you're that you're renting, but a lot of that again comes with a lower upfront cost so you might have some kind of deposit for making sure that you don't trash the place and you get that deposit back when you do move out another downside again is you're not building any equity so as you're making payments you're not paying yourself anything and you're just basically paying that money to a landlord of some kind but the pros are is you are are very liquid a lot of the time you're talking about at least a year contract and so that allows you to be able to get out of that potentially you could sublease Potentially, you can break contract if that's a very popular renting place, apartment building or something. And then again, it's easier to move a lot of the contents that are going to be in an apartment sometimes are half furnished for you. You don't have to worry about moving certain things. And again, you are you're just you have less stuff to move rather than a big house that's fully furnished, kids, all the extra stuff. So again, going back, it, it comes down to that break-even cost and you have to look at that and that's typically around five to seven years, depending on kind of the market of, of the real estate and, and stuff like that. Um, during COVID, that was like, heck, some people were, were breaking even, even after a year. But you, you do have to look at that. And, and historically, that's typically been at least five to seven years. And another cost that comes with that upfront cost is usually a realtor's commission whether that was the cost that you had to pay the the realtor to buy the home or on the closing costs for the sellers. So that's something that needs to be factored in. When you're buying, sometimes you can ask for the seller to pay for that closing cost, but uh, it doesn't always work out that way, especially in in hotter markets. So again, usually that break-even is about five years or so. So if you're looking at something more short-term, maybe you're looking at contract jobs, typically buying a home is not in your best interest or if you only want to be in a certain area for a certain amount of time like if you want to live in new york or uh, california la whatever it might make sense for you to just rent for a period of time and then buy a home when you find more of a permanent spot all right so i would say that that one is busted buying a home is not always better than renting over time it's a great way to build wealth Again, just even if you looked at it, you're just paying down the principal. Eventually, you're putting equity in that home by just paying yourself to pay that off. And then over time, in general, real estate has kept up with at least inflation, if not better, especially more recently. And so you can count on that there's some equity being built just on the property value. All right, myth number two, carrying credit card balances will boost your credit score. I can think of a a friend of mine, it was back in college, and he was trying to convince me that the reason he had such a good score was because he just continually used his credit cards and then just rolled them from one credit card to the next after a period of time. And (laughs) it's really comical, especially now looking back, but even during that time, being pretty new to my financial walk was, I didn't believe it. And, And sure enough, it was not correct. Eventually, sometimes that can work out into your favor, but eventually that will catch up to you. Uh, But one of the biggest things that you're looking at is your credit utilization. And your credit utilization actually makes up about 30% of your overall score. And what that credit credit utilization is looking at is how much of your credit are you using. So just to keep kind of numbers pretty simple, if you had a $1,000 limit on a credit card, generally you want to keep that under 30%. Anything over that, they're, you're kind of telling the the powers that be that are are loaning you money that you're potentially high risk, that you're taking on more debt than what you should be taking on, and so the likelihood of you being able to pay them back at some point in time is is not going to benefit you. So if you have something over that thirty percent utilization, so if you had a thousand dollar credit card limit and you're using more than three hundred dollars, that is typically a ding on your credit score. So one of the best things that you can do. Time and time again is just to pay off your credit card. Even if you do potentially, again, with the $1,000 credit card limit, that's pretty easy to to get over the 30%. Just pay it off every single month. And typically, as long as you're using that card, you're going to be benefited on your score. But you usually want to keep that limit as low as possible. You don't want to take that debt each and every month. So that one, again, is going to be busted. Now, carrying credit card balances will not just boost your credit score. Again, it goes back to the utilization. They want to see that you're utilizing it, but not overusing it. So again, that's busted. Another great myth that's coming up, and this is myth number three, and I get this a lot as a financial advisor, and that's precious metals are always a good investment. I think the key word here is always. There's not very many things that I can say is always a good investment, whether you're talking about CDs, U.S. treasuries, the stock market, real estate, there's always that, that clause in there that it's not always a good investment. Now, in certain circ- circumstances, I can say it's a generally a good investment, but not, not always for gold. You kind of have to look at history and kind of know why, and then different time periods to kind of understand that. And what we were on for a long time was called the gold standard, which is basically what was backing up the U.S. currency. And we came off that gold standard in 1972. And basically before that, which was enacted back in the 20s, was to keep people from buying too much gold and holding too much gold. What the U.S. wanted to do was basically stockpile it to back up the currency. But eventually they got off that standard where people could own as much gold as they wanted. And if you looked at different time periods, it varies. Sometimes gold can be a really great asset to own. And sometimes it just didn't do hardly anything or you could potentially even lose money. If you looked back at just like a simple period of time from 2011, which would have been August 28th, it was at a a peak of $1,873 per ounce. Well, as I was kind of doing this podcast, which is February 1st, it was at 2,072. So over that, literally over 12 years, it only went up 10.62%. That's not exactly the greatest rate of return, but again, that's a certain segment of time. If you went from like 2013-14 until now, that rate of return is drastically better. And if you go back in time, there's even great times to own gold. But in general, if you went back way back in history, even before the gold standard, Historically, gold has kept up with inflation, which over time, inflation has typically been run around 3%. So gold just being one of those inflationary assets, it's kept right around that. And again, certain periods have been really good. It's even outperformed the stock market at times. And then other times when you're looking at different assets, it doesn't perform. And usually that is compared more to like an asset like bonds or something that's a little bit more secure. But again, it's not meant to necessarily create wealth. Now, just like any investment, I encourage you to diversify. If it's a certain asset class you want to own, diversify that into your portfolio. It shouldn't make up a vast majority of it. We do have clients that want to own it. It's a lot different now. Most people don't have like a bar of gold. Basically, what they're doing is just buying into the value and they're technically owning a piece of it, kind of like a stock in a company but you don't technically have ownership of like a bar of gold. So again, it's just it depends on the period of time. Again, the key word here is always. One thing I'll say too, and one of the downsides to gold versus say the stock market or real estate is that you're only looking at gold as an appreciating asset. The only way you make money is it grows in value over time. It goes from a dollar an ounce to $10 an ounce. It's not you're not getting any kind of dividend or interest or anything that's getting paid to you to create some kind of income in the, in the midterm. So for somebody who is in retirement or something like that, this isn't always a great investment. This is just somebody who wants to play on the value of where it's at right now and they think it's going to appreciate over a certain period of time. So again, that's a downside to, to, to gold. And so I would again say this one's busted. This is not always a good investment. It can be a good investment, but it's not always a good investment. All right, we're going to be looking at myth number four. And this is giving up a daily coffee purchase is a financial game changer. And I'll tell you, when I first kind of saw this myth, I've seen it plenty of times in financial presentations, listening to Dave Ramsey or some of the books that they kind of come up with. And I guess my first opinion was no. I mean, yes time value of money and, and how it's calculated of course that that, that plays a, a part in any picture but i guess once i started digging into it a little bit deeper i guess for somebody who makes their own coffee i guess i just didn't understand the average cup of coffee what which i would ask you what do you think is the na- national average of a cup of coffee and i even asked my wife i'm like what do you think it is and she was actually right on it's five dollars again, I was pretty surprised. That's much more than what I would expect and way more than I would ever pay for. Again, I don't go through Starbucks. I just make it, so save a lot of money there, but $5. So if you spent that every single day, that actually makes up $1,825 in a year, which I was, again, really surprised. And, and most people are saying, well, I don't buy Starbucks every day. Well, you probably spend more than just their standard coffee. I'm sure you're getting the frappuccino with goat's milk and yada 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 and it ends up being more than five dollars or your kids in the car and you give them the the cake pop and and all that extra stuff so those things add up I'm sure you're if you're a coffee person that goes and drinks that uh, periodically at big beer or Starbucks I'm sure you're averaging out about five dollars so if you actually compounded that and again you just looked at it Um, with the time value of money and $1,825 over 30 years at a 10% compounded uh, interest rate. What do you think that would be? Just offhand, what do you think that came out to be? And the answer is $300,000 or just a little bit above that, which I was really surprised. Again, I'm used to just buying like a $10 thing of Fulgur's and just making it myself. But if you were to to take that money that you would normally purchase coffee every single day and stock that away and and continue to let that grow over time, that could be a substantial amount of money. You think $300,000 that could be a very very nice home, that could produce a good amount of retirement income for you. That's a very very good check to write to somebody if you're giving it away. So, I would say that this is confirmed. This is a great money changer. I guess that just if you're struggling with something like that or, or those purchases, whether that's energy drinks or or coffee, or if you smoke cigarettes or if you dip, those are costs that could be around $5 in each one of those purchases that could definitely help you in your financial, financial game. So I'd confirm that. Again, I, after going through that, I didn't think that that was a, a big one. Now, one thing I'll say to caveat with that and, and this has kind of been my view on it for a long time is that if those small purchases keep you from making really bad big ones, then sometimes it's worth doing that. I'm not, again, making sure that you are not okaying that you go out and spend $5 every single day on coffee. But what I see sometimes too is people deprive themselves of those little things and then eventually they're like, oh, well, I'll treat myself to this really big thing buy the car. I will go on this huge vacation. And it's like, well, it could have been uh, financially way worse for you to make that big financial mistake, put yourself in debt than it would have been to just buy the coffee. So that's kind of a little bit where my view's at. But again, I confirm this $5 every single day can help you financially in the long run, especially if you have years for it to grow. All right. We've got money. Myth number five, money can make you happiest. Now I'll be honest, this is one that I probably did the most research on, did the farthest deep dive on, um, because again, I had some pre-existing notions when it came to this, and I wanted to back it up with faith and statistics. So kind of the first part out, we'll just say it with the faith aspect in 1 Timothy 6.17. It says, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth but on God who richly provides with all things to enjoy. And I can tell you through kind of some of my years and kind of working with some different people, we almost use money. However, having money or spending money cannot be the end goal. If you think that being promoted, earning more, saving more, or spending more will finally make you happy, you're in for a a big letdown. Only God who richly provides can make us finally and, and fully happy. And I've seen that time and time again where people just think, once I get to that next promoted job or that increase in pay or I get to this X amount of money, whether that's six figures or over 50,000, whatever that number is for you, that I'll be happy. And I'll tell you, working with clients of all different ages, all different income, that's not the case. Now, there are things that do attribute to money making you a little bit happier. And that doesn't make it you the happiest but it does make you happier. And so I had to do a lot of reading. One of the, the excerpts that I looked at was from the PNAS, which is the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. And they'd done two different studies, and one was more than a couple decades ago. And basically they looked at money in general, the, pe- the money that they were making, and if it made them happier on a certain scale. And what they found was that at each growing point, of, uh, growing point of their money, they they were happier. They showed uh, higher signs of of being happy. So it does correlate that the more money you make does make you happy. But back in that original study that they found was once they hit a certain plateau, basically their amount of happiness was very, very minimal. And back then it was around 75000 What they found now is it's a little bit higher than that. But what they found was that over that certain amount of money, the amount of you making over and above that did not really help instrumentally in how happy you were. And there's kind of a couple of reasons for that. I think once you get above that certain income level, things just become a little bit easier. And I'll kind of hit on this in another money myth that's coming up, but just things are a little bit easier to budget for. And because there is some wiggle room there, especially for the things that you weren't planning on. And that's why, again, Emergency funds are, are really important, but there's other things that go into that as well. They found that if you made over that amount of money, statistically, your marriage is, is much, much likelier to to be good and, and fruicious than if you made less than that and were maybe even closer to the poverty levels. And there's just other things that you can look at in everyday life, you know, whether that's the amount of people that have won the lottery and still have gone broken, you can probably make the <laughs> The analogy that they're not very happy. And again, that was another myth in itself (laughs) going through that one. It's very highly touted. And it's a big statistic used a lot that 70% of people who win the lottery end up being bankrupt three to five years later. Actually doing some more research on that, that isn't as a myth that was uh, a pretty high up instructor at one of these colleges that made that, that comment years and years ago. And it was taken out of context in a way and that the media started using that a lot and they kind of snowballed before they could really catch that one. So actually the certified financial planning board actually came out with a new, a new study on that. And they found that it was actually closer to a third of people who win the lottery will end up bankrupt three to five years later. Now, I don't know what that is. I, I was trying to go through the, that study to see what constitutes the lottery. Is that, you know, $25,000? Is that $100,000? Is that over a million dollars? Is it only Powerball winners? You know, what is that? Because I've run into a very high number of people who inherited money or money that they won in some kind of contest or the lottery, and a vast majority of them, without a plan, started to spend and spend and spend and thought the money would never run out. And by the time that they realized that they were making a mistake, the money was practically gone. So to me, and, and from what I've seen, and again, going back to faith, I would say money does not make you happiest, but it does allow you, especially once you get to that certain level, to have options. And I think that's really one of the biggest things uh, that I've seen is, is when people are backed into a corner, they feel like they can't get out. And the only thing that they can do is just to keep going to work or potentially work more hours to hopefully, you know, scrounge up a little bit more money to hopefully get them out of that corner that they've been backed into whether that was debt or personal decisions, but I think the biggest thing is it allows them to make different decisions, whether that's they want to jump jobs because they believe the grass is greener on the other side or they want to start that business and 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 build that business up or maybe one of the spouses wants to stay home, they don't want to feel like they have to go to work to be able to to provide for their family, they can potentially save money by staying home. And one spouse can work and make enough money to to provide. I think that's the biggest thing is once you get to that income level, it gives you options where when you're below that, you don't have a ton of options and it makes it a lot harder to pivot and, and kind of make different decisions. I think that's where that decision comes down to. And so if I was to kind of make my Answer on this. I would just say it's plausible. I would say it doesn't make you the happiest person, but it does show that once you get to a certain amount of of money, it does make you happier statistically. Again, it doesn't make you the happiest. I've seen people again, clients that we have that are millionaires and they're still not happy, and we have clients that you know barely collect anything other than social security, and they are just completely happy and they're just happy to be retired and and feeling like every day is Saturday. So again, it really just depends on the person. Um, but again, if you are expecting that if you get promoted or you're earning more or that you can save more or that you can spend more, that you'll finally be happy, you're going to be in for a big letdown. All right, we'll kind of move on from that. I think we got a little dark there, but um, we'll go on to number six. My partner manages the finances, so I don't need to know about money. Man, I see this a ton, and even if you listen to Dave Ramsey, and I found that this is one of the things that I really agree with him on, is that most people in a marriage will have two people. You have one person that's very uh, analytical, and they like to do the budgets, and they like to keep track of their finances, and then you have another one that is what he calls the free spirit, and basically they just don't want to be held down to a budget. They want to feel like they can just spend money. They make maybe enough money to, to allow that to happen. And I'll tell you time and time again, whether that was for the good or the bad, is that it's really important that both people are in on the financial picture. And sometimes what happens, especially when I'm making appointments and and doing reviews with people, is that the person that typically manages the finances will be there. And then that one spouse that doesn't really have any knowledge or, or whatnot about the finances isn't there. And I encourage them every time like, hey, you need to bring this person in. You need to bring them in, whether they are just listening to me and and know just a little bit about what's going on or just a little bit about the plan. They need to be in on it because you two are on the same team and and you're going through your marriage or anything. Everything's going to be a lot easier when you guys are both on the same page and both working towards a common goal. And if only one of you is is worrying about the money, then it's gonna be drastically harder to be able to accomplish your goals. So I would say that this is busted big time. You both need to be in on the picture. And And again, we've seen some really bad cases where the person who was managing the finances passes. And then that duty is then given to the person that doesn't wanna know about money. And they're dealt with that. And usually it doesn't end very well. A lot of times they can lean on us and we can help them out a great deal, but it's important that both people know a lot about what's going on. Do they need to know everything? Do they need to be bogged down by that? No. I can look at our own marriage between Nicole and I, and even very early on in our marriage, I had to force her to sit down and just talk about the budget. Like, hey, this is the budget. This is the plan. This is kind of where we're going. And she would roll her eyes every single time. But years later, she sat me down and she's like, I was really glad that we, we stuck with that plan because it worked and it allowed her to stay home. And there were some big things that we had to make sacrifices on. But again, we were on the same page and we were on the same team. And I think that's so important. And so if, if you're feeling like you guys aren't on the same page, I would just encourage you to sit down with each other, make a date night, do something where you do some kind of an activity where, you guys get on the same page when it comes to your finances. So again, busted. All right. Number seven, I have enough money. I don't need to budget, man. This one's tough for especially those people that do make a good amount of money. And I've seen it where they still end up being sometimes okay because they make enough money because they're putting a good amount into their 401k. And some of these people are maxing out their 401k and maxing out a lot of their options that they have. But they still could be doing significantly better. And if you looked at the percentages of, of their income that they're putting away, it's drastically less than the person that's making, say, 70000 putting money into their 401k. And so that's where I don't agree. And I think that this one's busted. No matter how much money you have, you need to budget. And I always kind of turn the table and I say, think of the place that you work in or your church or a business. And you think, how would they do if they didn't do any accounting work and they didn't do any bookkeeping? How well do you think that that business would run? And it would go under the ground if you didn't know. It's really, really important to to keep tracking your money and make sure that you budget regardless of how much you're making. Now, do some things get masked when you make enough money that you know, you don't feel like you need to budget. And I see this for those people that usually make over six figures where some of their bad habits are masked because they make enough money. But if they didn't, those things would be drastically, drastically hurting them. And so this one's busted big time. Everybody needs a budget regardless of how much money you're making. Again, once you get over a certain amount, you have some leeway there. But everybody needs a budget. All right, number eight. All debt is bad debt. And one thing that I can think of when I, when I see this line is kind of one of my financial literacy courses and, and, and we talk about good debt and bad debt. Typically bad debt is, is you're putting money into things that do not accumulate over time and they're actually depreciating assets. These things could be like boats, motorhomes, anything that you could probably just go get on a whim. Those are, are bad debts. Good debts are typically real estate in general or an education. Now, one caveat that I'll say to this and probably why I won't say that this is confirmed is that all debt is bad debt when you're going into retirement. Now, I shouldn't say all debt, but in general, any of those debts are going to be requiring an extra cash flow to, to accomplish that. And so the people that I've found that we've worked with who go into retirement debt-free are significantly better off. Again, the money that it takes from your investments to create an income to pay for that debt, it's pretty substantial. And so for those people that do not have that debt, it allows them to have so many more options than the ones that do. And so regardless if they have good debt or bad debt, I encourage you to be debt-free once you're going into retirement. But again, a debt is looked at two different ways. Is it going towards something that's going to help you out and benefiting you long-term? Uh, again, real estate or, or your personal home, that's going to help you accumulate value over time, and then you can also pay yourself back through paying down that principal. And then education. Hopefully that education allows you to make more money, and that over your earning years, you'll earn more money by having that education Rather than if you didn't. Now, of course, there's always caveats to both of those. There's educations that were not worth going for that you could have gotten it on YouTube and that you didn't need. That person that's working at Walmart who's got a master's degree, you know, that I would say that that debt was not worth taking. And then, same thing for real estate. Not every house is worth buying. And so, that's where my caveat is. But most of those bad debts are. Your your car or the boat or the RV, those are generally not good things to, to take out money on because those do depreciate over time, even if it may not seem like it in one year over time, those things depreciate. So all debt is bad debt. I would say that is debunked. That is not true. There are some good debts, but I will say that it's plausible when it comes to retirement. I don't think that there's too many debts that I would have going into retirement. One could possibly be rental properties just because of of some of the tax benefits to having those, but you can't make an argument that if, the, if that rental property was completely debt-free that you're making more money. So again, I think if you can go into retirement debt-free, you're better off. All right, those were the eight money myths. If there are any ones that you have run into or ones that you maybe believed over the years, And you want questions on that, of course, please go to my link, whether that's in the bio of this or the bio of my social medias on LinkedIn or Facebook and click on that type form link. And that will take you to a a couple of questions that you can submit. And again, you remain completely anonymous. And and I don't know who you are, but these questions will be answered in a future episode uh, coming to you soon. You can find that into any one of the, the bios of my social medias or in this podcast show notes. Of course, if you have any questions or want to reach out, you can give us a call or text us at 269-978-6000. And I cannot wait to see you in the next episode of the Wealthy Homes Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Wealthy Homes Podcast. Be sure to click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Connor Bowserman or preferred financial group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investment advice. Always seek the advice of Connor Bowserman or other qualified financial advisors with any questions you may have regarding this episode. Connor Bowserman is a licensed financial advisor and any of the investment advisory services offered are through Harbor Investments, member SPIC. Products and services provided are not NCOA insured, have no credit union guarantee, and may lose value. Consumers Professional Credit Union and Marshall Community Credit Union and Harbor Investments are separate and independent companies, and credit unions are not providing security services.